Yeah, thanks for doing this, Joe. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you're one of like the biggest names in sports science. I'm not saying that because you pay for my hotel rooms when you travel, <laughs> but maybe I am. Okay. Um, but I realized that you actually started out doing substance abuse in, uh, yeah. in adolescence, right? Yeah. So how did you end up in sports science? What led you to this field? It's, um, yeah, it's one of those coincident events that have profound effects on people's lives. It mm-hmm. was, um, I was a master's student at Brock University in, in uh, St. Catharines, Ontario. And um, like a lot of undergrad students, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And um, yeah, my I was a competitive triathlete at the time. And so I wanted to do something that would allow me to train. And so I took a graduate degree in mm-hmm. education and um, was a funded project on adolescent substance abuse. And having been an adolescent who abused some substances, I was interested in the research. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, I, I fell in love with the statistics and, and the whole research process. And at the end of that, um, I'd been working with a new faculty member at Brock named uh, Jean Cote, and um, he was going to Australia to work on a project at the Institute mm-hmm. of Sport there. And he said, hey, I need a research assistant. And I turned down a PhD at Penn State in biobehavioral medicine to go and work. Um, really? You turned res- down a PhD, eh? Yeah, yeah. As a research assistant in Australia. And it was like, uh, never looked back. It was, yeah, this is... This is amazing. I can't believe people get paid to do this all day. Wow. Yeah. Maybe I can make a movie about this one day, just, you know, under Fandom Science Productions. Yeah. And you can get some royalties out I've of it. I've got Don't some worry. ideas of who could play me in the movie. So, who? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Bruce uh, Willis? <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing Bruce Willis in this movie. <laughs> wow. That's true. <laughs> um, so, actually, Nick, uh, Nick Wadi, who was also on the show yeah. on the first episode, he said you almost became a cop. Is that a, a true story? Yeah, that's the many uh, twists and turns of the the life of the of, life of Joe Baker. Of right? Joe Baker, yeah. When I um, so I I dropped out of high school. Um, uh, All right, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You dropped out of high school? Yeah, I dropped out of high school. Um, between it, at the time they had uh, grade twelve and grade thirteen, and I dropped out of high school at uh, in when I was in grade twelve. How come? Um. I, I, I was never really challenged at school and I, I hung out with a bad group of people. Really? And, uh, yeah. And so, um, I, I think one year I missed 35 days of school in one semester and, uh, but I always did well on exams and things like that. And so okay. I didn't really see the point. And, um, and then I worked in the real world. I worked as a block layer on a construction site for, um, six months and mm-hmm. I decided that I thought I needed more out of life than that. And, um, not that there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And, uh, so I went back to school and then, uh, because I hadn't taken advanced courses in high school, I had to go through the college system. uh, And then it was through the college system that I got into the university Mm -hmm. system and undergrad and then onwards, uh, onwards from there. Okay. But then, so if you were never challenged by school and to the point where you dropped out of high school, Mm. How did you find the motivation to even, you know, do a university degree and then a master's and then PhD and then after that, like, did something change in your life or did you always have it in you, but you never applied it? Yeah, it's hard to say looking back, um, you know, you don't want to kind of romanticize yeah. that the potential was always there. It just wasn't realized. I don't know that that was the case. I think, I honestly think it was a random collection of events that 
you know, that we could try to replicate and probably fail miserably. Um, but it was just being at the right place at the right time and, mm -hmm. and you know, ending up here. Um, I think eventually I got to the point where I was the drive in the driver's seat of my career and what research I wanted to look at. And once I did that, then there was a sense of um, more fulfillment through education and through school. But mm -hmm. it didn't start out that way, probably because I didn't have the autonomy to direct myself. Right. Yeah. And so that's just something you kind of worked on developing over time, like the... The work ethic or, you know. The... Well, it, I don't know. I think the work ethic was always there because it, I was always had this kind of obsessive personality, whether it was mm. martial arts or triathlete or, or all those kinds of things. There was always an obsession that, that I was kind of focused on, you know, comic books when I was a little kid. It was always something that consumed my time. Uh, and right now it's research into uh, elite athletes and, and uh, older people. So, yeah, the drive and the motivation was always there. It's just the finding the where to channel, channel it is where the yeah, I would say the mystery was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for me, for sure. So one of, the, um, one of the areas that you do research in the most right now is talent identification and development. So uh, for people listening who may not be familiar with it, it's how to, how to develop talent in the best way possible, uh, how to identify talented individuals, and also what to do with with um, with individuals as time moves on, how to deal with their talents. Uh, so what would you say right now is the biggest myth in talent that people buy into and that as a result of people buying into that, it affects identifying talent negatively? Well, I think the biggest myth and the, probably the one with the greatest consequences, the idea that talent is something that we have a good idea of how to measure. Mm -hmm. um, all the evidence that we have is that our measure measurements of talent are flawed and um, um, that, that if, if it is something that is measurable, we're, we are fundamentally bad at measuring it. Uh, and so that's what our research is focusing on these days is yeah. getting people to understand the flaws in the system, to get, to realize that there's a problem with the way that we've designed athlete development and selection systems in, in sport, uh, not just in Canada, but around the world. Mm -hmm. And then let's, let's work on trying to find a solution, whether that solution is emphasizing mass participation more than we do and, and less selection, or may, maybe it's designing better metrics for selection. The first step is recognizing that we have a problem and then trying to come up with with not just one solution, but probably multiple solutions. So can you give us like an example on, for example, like a policy or uh, or a change that's been made in talent identification that's actually negative or that, you know, that shows how bad we are at talent identification? Well, we've done a couple of studies. Uh, the the one we did in 2011, looking at accuracy, the professional sports drafts was uh, was one that really hit this point home. That you know, if this was if this was a question that could be solved by money, then professional sports teams would have solved this issue because the selection decisions have very important financial mm -hmm. consequences for them. And so. Um, for us, when we looked at the accuracy of those selections and saw just how poor they were, um, that was a real light bulb moment uh, for us to, to, to try to say, okay, well, if they're that bad when they wait until the college level or the high school level in the case of baseball and they still can't select it, well, how mm -hmm. accurate are selections going back to kids who are 13 or 9 right. and when sports are asked to make potential uh, or make decisions about potential of uh, of these kids. Mm -hmm. You know, you get to go to the competitive stream, but you're not good enough yet. Well, those 
decisions have consequences and they're, and those consequences are long-term. And so what it's really emphasized for us is that we need to go back to the drawing board about how we design athlete development structures, because Mm -hmm. the way we're designing it is selection based and specialization based. And when we focus on those things, we have real world costs to not just the athlete development, but interest in sport, uh, developing citizens who love sport for the rest of their lives. All of those things are compromised when we emphasize early selection and early identification. Right. So speaking of early selection, early identification, where do you stand on the specialization versus diversification in early age? So for people listening who may not be familiar, specialization obviously is when you pick one sport as a, as a young child or you're forced to pick one sport, you stick with it, you practice it all day and in hopes to become a pro at it one day. Diversification is when you pick multiple sports, you enjoy all of them. Maybe in the future you pick one if you find that you have the potential to be a pro. Where do you, where do you stand on this debate? Well... Some of the work that uh, Jean and I did in Australia was uh, really emphasizing this um, uh, diversification or sampling uh, Mm -hmm. approach to athlete development. I guess what I've learned in the time since then is that we need to be aware of dichotomies that just assume that people fall into one versus the other. Uh, And so what I would recommend over that is to try to look at, well, what's the approach that's the that's best suited to this athlete I'm working with uh, at this moment. And so we get, we move away from this one size fits all approach into more of now emphasizing what we call kind of loosely the art of coaching, knowing that, well, this is an athlete who, you know, the worst thing I can do is, is undermine their passion for their sport by saying, no, you can't do that today. We're going to do this other activity that you have no interest in versus an athlete who maybe needs more work on fundamental movement skills, Mm -hmm. needs more work on developing just an intrinsic love of sport. And you say, well, no, let's do multiple things because um, I think this is better for your development. For me, that's a richer conversation. That's a better approach to athlete development than it needs to be either this or that. Or that, Um, right. I think there's always those kind of dichotomies are always damaging and don't represent the complexity of us uh, as developing human beings. In a lot of areas in life, the truth is often in the middle, right? It's not on one side of the debate or another. Yeah, and it might be, uh, maybe not exactly in the middle. It may be more weighted towards a diversification type approach. If we look at the overall developmental Mm -hmm. benefits, that's probably where the greatest benefits are. But I'm just um, reluctant to say everybody needs to diversify. And and, and I think when we do that, we have the potential to undermine that, that purely passionate person who wants to just do one right. thing, the Wayne Gretzky's, the Sidney Crosby's, the Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part is when we have models that emphasize diversification as an approach to athlete development, when we say to parents, you know what, your kids need to do five yeah. or six sports, then you're marginalizing people who can't afford that. And so we just end up with a knock-on effect of having a biased approach that's going right. to support um, development in middle-aged and upper uh, middle class or middle class and upper middle class families at the, you know, at the disadvantage of those below that. Because uh, diversification sounds great on paper, but then when you actually apply it, yeah, I mean, most people can't afford one one sport for their children, especially if they have multiple children. So yeah. how is that going to be realistic? Well, I, the other part I wonder is whether we could take the the information that we've learned about the benefits of diversification and build a more specialized program that that has those benefits built in. So maybe if we're talking about the development of soccer players, mm-hmm. we don't have them specialized in a position. They rotate around positions, and so they get that 
within sport variation that helps develop more fundamental movement skills and, right. and enjoyment, intrinsic motivation, and all that kind of stuff without having to say, "Hey, parents, you've got to now pay for multiple sports for your kids, or else right. they're going to be at a disadvantage." Um, so, speaking of, about talent and from a nature versus nurture perspective, what do you think uh, is the biggest myth about talent from that perspective? Um, I guess the biggest myth from that perspective is that it's a fixed entity, that it's a quality that you either have at one point in time or you don't have it. And that's probably the biggest myth we have about talent is that it's static. It isn't. It, it evolves and changes, but based on the environments that we put athletes in. And so from that perspective, you could look at everybody as a, a set of raw materials that just need to be placed in the right kind of mm -hmm. environment to get maximized development. Can everybody reach the same level of development that I don't think so. That doesn't make evolutionary sense. But can we design better environments for everybody to become a better learner? Yeah, absolutely. It requires knowing what those basic raw materials are and and going from there. But that would be step one. Right. Yeah. But, um, I mean, that just increases and in the, the complexity of talent speaks to how really complicated it is. I mean, no wonder talent identification is so, so hard. No wonder why we kind of suck at it for the most part. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, one of the things, and I say this to coaching groups all the time, that the most difficult problem in high performance sport is, mm -hmm. is athlete selection, because not only are the consequences huge, but the problem itself is so difficult. Right. And again, if, if it could be solved by throwing money at it, professional sports would have solved it, but it, it can't. It requires a fundamentally different approach to talent selection and athlete development. What would you say is the biggest problem in talent identification and development that the sport of hockey in Canada faces? Hockey's in Canada is a unique kind of um, uh, ecosystem. So I think there's a lot of data being collected. There's a lot of research being done. Uh, there's a lot of really great questions being asked. From a talent development and selection standpoint, I think the part that we're missing is evaluation of of um of these research questions mm -hmm. of the big data approaches are they leading to better outcomes in the long term and so for me the thing that we always emphasize is we'll complete the circle if you've done the research and you're collecting the data and you're analyzing it well are you evaluating those those decisions and those research projects to see if they're having real world outcomes? Right. And most people are great at doing the first half of the circle, but not the evaluation part. And I think part of that is is work and, and the amount of time it mm -hmm. takes and money and resources and all that stuff. And I wonder how much of it is also about fear that coaches whose jobs are are based on the assumption that they're good at what they do, don't want to get evidence that say that they're maybe not as good as they think. Right. Because we love seeing uh, initiatives being taken. We love seeing funding going into sport. We love all that. We celebrate yeah. it, but then we don't, we don't circle back and see whether it's paid off or not. And yeah. that's the, that's the biggest problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, um, it's, it's too bad because I know there are a lot of coaches out there at all sorts of levels that mm -hmm. are collecting, you know, flash drives full of data that are just not being analyzed. You know, we, we talk in research about the need for longitudinal data sets and, and, and tracking over time. Most coaches are collecting those data. Um, they're just not, they just don't have the time and the wherewithal to analyze it. Right. 
Okay, let's switch topics from talent to something a bit more cheerful and joyful. Talk <laughs> sure. about mo- talk about mortality in athletes, since you've okay. uh, great you. This is an area that you've done uh, a lot of research in uh, longevity of athletes compared to the general population, and also between sports too. So one of the most interesting studies you've done is um, with Surgeon, who is now a lecturer in UCLA, right? Yeah, yeah. So you found that the median life expectancy is 75 years in the MLB, 81.4 in the NBA, 78 in the NFL, and 80 in the NHL. So one of the things that struck me the most is the MLB, their median life expectancy being so low, and also because they have the highest risk of imminent mortality. Any idea on why MLB players are at such a risk compared to the to these sports? And we're not talking big differences, but yeah, you know, having the highest risk of imminent mortality, having the lowest median life expectancy. It's interesting. I think the interesting thing that we need to note there is that it's the lowest median life uh, expectancy of the professional sport, but they're yes. all above the mm-hmm. median life expectancy of the normal population, which is was the critical finding in Surgeon's work is that even in a sport like baseball, which doesn't have aerobic, um, doesn't have a lot of aerobic um, energy demands, it doesn't have a lot of especially those players going mm-hmm. back to the 1880s. Um, there isn't a lot of positive health. You know, you look at baseball and there's not a lot of positive health benefits there that you get just from playing the game compared to a sport like basketball or um, or ice hockey, which have a, their energy demands are much higher, that kind of thing. And then comparing that to a sport like football, where there's lots of discussion about the impact risk of, um, of being in certain positions in, in football. But all of those mm-hmm. sports had higher um, life expectancies than the general population. And so, to be honest, why baseball was the lowest of those four, we really don't have a good idea. Part of it could be the, how baseball has changed the behavior patterns of baseball players over the history of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, that study looked at uh, longitudinal trends from the beginning of the sport until until currently. And so there's a lot of system change that happened across all of those sports during that time. So it could be something that's lost in that kind of system noise. Um, right. So my, my initial idea before I even finished reading the paper is it could be because, like you said, lack of aerobic activity in, in baseball mixed that with uh, them being notorious for PED use yeah. over the years, right? Um, also, you know, it's not the healthiest sport to participate in. If you look at, uh, the, the players habits and how they live their lives. Right. Um, so my other question is the differences you found between these four major sports and life expectancy, and this is purely speculative, but how much of that could you really attribute to the difference in culture or ethnicities between the players? Because in the NHL, you see mostly white men, right? NBA, NFL, mostly black men. Yeah. Um, MLB is a bit more mixed, but has a lot of Hispanics also. So can we really attribute some of this to cultural and ethnicity uh, differences? Yeah, and that's one of the things Surgeon talked about in that paper is the ultimate limitation of all these analyses is that the normal population we're comparing mm-hmm. them to is a mix of different uh, racial and ethnic groups. And and like you say, in a lot of the sports, there isn't that diversity of, of um, uh, ethnicity And so you're right, it could very well be that the reason certain sports die younger than other sports or live longer than the average population could be that we've got a tighter, we've controlled the the Mm -hmm. homogeneity of the variants there to a better extent than we do in the normal population. 
the problem is it's really tough to analyze those data because it requires making assumptions about um, racial identity from right. um, from archival data. And right. So we can do that with contemporary samples, but how do you do that with somebody in the 1940s or 1930s where player-specific data is not as available as it is now? And so mm -hmm. I think it would be a really cool study to do a subset of that analysis with more contemporary samples. But then the problem with that is you've got to wait for those contemporary samples to pass away in order to run these mortality-based analyses. So in, in fields like business and psychology, sometimes race and IQ or race and intelligence is a really controversial topic yeah. and a very sensitive topic. In the field of sports, is race um, discussed freely? I mean, are there limitations on discussing the impacts of race on success in sports or? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think if you talk to people who are practitioners or, or members of the sporting community, they'll have very clear um, um, philosophies and positions on race and what it means in sport. Uh, and I think from our perspective, the, the thing that we've started to look at is the power of those beliefs as opposed to w whether race is a real concept that has real world meaning. Right. Um, I think that's a different one. And that's mm -hmm. one for the biologists to, uh, to argue about for us. It's well, if you believe it has an effect, how does that affect your performance and your practice and your training? Uh, right. And so for us, that's the, that's the outcome that we're interested in that, that relationship between a belief and, and the ultimate performance. Right. Yeah. And you can't help but think that, you know, if you're the single white person uh, at the you know, hundred meter finals in the Olympics and you look across and see um, the rest of the field is, is a, a group of people that can trace their lineage to uh, West Africa to not think that you're at a disadvantage. Right. And so regardless of whether that's true or not, thinking that it's true probably has an effect on your performance. Right. I mean, it messes up with your psyche. And... Absolutely. And we know that confidence and self-efficacy and these kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, tan more tangible psychological characteristics undermine performance. And so, right. you know, if we affect those, we affect performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just going back, circling back on the longevity and mortality, sure. um, I mean, you're tenured, you can keep talking about this, you'll be fine. I I'll probably <laughs> will never get a job if I keep talking. Um, NFL players still have a higher life expectancy than the average person. So do you think all the recent talk about CTE and suicide, um, well, obviously true, but could it have also created this availability bias in our minds that, hey, playing you know, playing in the NFL is dangerous for you. You'll end up with CTE. You'll end up, you know, worst case scenario, you'll end up committing suicide when in reality, they actually live longer than the average person. How long, how much of this availability bias does the media contribute to us? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting question. And, and one of the things that Surgeon and, and, uh, Nick and I talked about with these data is, um, is what's the social message that we want to give. We don't want to undermine all of the research that's come out on CTE because it's uh, it's important and, and Absolutely, it's, yeah. it's valuable. And so where we landed was not so much, um, he, yeah, football's a great sport and look, because uh, they have a longer life expectancy than the average person. That wasn't our message. Our message was more um, what's going to be the long-term implications of CTE on what looks like a positive relationship between playing football and life expectancy. And the flip side of that is how much longer could they have lived if 
they weren't in a high impact sport. And mm-hmm. so the benefits of playing football, if we ever get impact um, and concussion risk under control, might even be larger than we see in that in that paper because it right now it's not under control. And if right. anything, it's you know as it's as it's not as bad as it's ever been because they got rid of spearing and those kinds of high risk um, uh, maneuvers. But you know, it's it has a long way to go in order for it to be as safe as it possibly could be. Right, there's still a long ways to go. Um, so I'm going to throw a hypothetical question at you. Love it. Based on the mortality uh, rates, based on the safety of each sport, if you had someone in front of you who's who somehow has the option to go into one of those four major leagues, which one would you advise them to go? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot, Lou. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was going to be that. Only the hardest questions on this podcast. It's a gotcha interview uh-huh. person. Wow. Personal preferences aside, I would probably say uh, basketball um, mm-hmm. because of the aerobic conditioning that uh, they get through basketball. Um, I think there's the money that's in basketball, which leads to higher um, socioeconomic status, right. which is one of the big social determinants of health. And so it ticks a lot of boxes in those kind of social determinants of health perspective. It um, it ticks a lot of boxes in terms of energy demands and health risk. Um, and then it's certainly, I would say it's certainly not any worse than, um, than a sport like ice hockey or, um, football, which has the concussive risk. And so, yeah, with those things in mind, I think I'd put my, put my uh, bets on basketball. For someone who's on the spot, you, uh, you nailed that pretty well. <laughs> Good job. Good job, Joe. <laughs> um, okay. Let's, let's turn into, let's get to the actual kind of fun part of the podcast. Um, this was fun so far. This was fun. I know. I agree. This is funner. Okay. Um, as a as someone who is a former martial artist yeah. and obviously you love sport, but you're also a sports scientist, do you see a future for MMA and maybe even the NFL um, in terms of you know the current research, CTE, the dangers that we're starting to find out about those sports? Do you really see those sports lasting a long time? It's a great question. Um, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure, you know, part of me as a martial artist and knowing the, the hard work and the training that goes into that and, and that it's not just, you know, punching each other in the face that Mm -hmm. it's a, it is really a, um, a human based physical chess match that's occurring in that, in that octagon. Um, and as somebody who appreciates that and, and the elegance and the beauty that we see in there, and trying to reconcile that with my views as a scientist about health risk and, and what's happening to people right. when they're competing and participating in that human chess match. I really don't know. I think socially, I could see socially we get to a point where we don't condone those kinds of sports anymore because we've evolved past it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have an, I uh, really have an answer to that question because I'm still somebody who, you know, who watches yeah, those, uh, exactly. those events, even though I recognize the that, dangers, the danger and the risk that those people are doing. And, and yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't, you know, if, if my nephews said, Hey, I want to, I want to be an MMA fighter, I would sit down with them and say, well, you know, these are the risks. Are you sure you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, I'm 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 condoning these things by watching, but I'm also, you know, uh, acknowledging right. the risks by saying, you know, I wouldn't want my nephews doing that. 
I mean, even fighters themselves, when you ask them, you know, what, what, what about if your son wants to be an MMA fighter? And in majority of the interviews, they say no, because they don't want their kid to be in that position, even though they are the fighter themselves. You know what I mean? So yeah. as fans, and but also as a scientist who's who knows a lot about the dangers of these sports, yeah, we're caught in the middle. It's like, what do you do? But socially, I think fighting will always have a place. Just from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, we've always fought as human beings. We will probably always fight. How how can you really eradicate fighting from our DNA? Yeah, but it's, that's essentially what sport is, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, combat without the combat. It's um, it's putting yourself physically against another person and right. seeing who wins. That's what sports are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe the the <laughs> delineation needs to be between. MMA and jiu-jitsu, right? Which okay. jiu-jitsu is the is maybe the less risky version of the same kind of um, uh, of interaction, where it's mm-hmm. okay. Where you're a physical problem for me to solve, but I, it's not solved by punching you in the face yeah. or um, or hurting your brain. Right. Um, yeah, because jiu-jitsu is not not nearly as dangerous as any other martial art i would say well i guess it Maybe depends not. on how we define Wrestling. danger right like the yeah danger head trauma to your, yeah head trauma for sure mm-hmm. it wouldn't be as mm-hmm. as risky but maybe to your um joints and um, your joints to your back tissue, maybe it could be yeah. that's true um okay so a question about your productivity or tips for productivity you your resume is extensive you have over 240 publications right 240 something like that yeah you lost count yeah yeah lost count um i don't know how many books you have Obviously, an appearance on this show, which is, yeah, you know, the, the most important. It's the pinnacle. Yeah. It's on the first page of your resume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what tips do you have for me and people listening on how to maximize your productivity? Um, surround yourself with good people. Uh, I think that's been my secret is um, is that it never feels like work. And when you mm-hmm. get emails from people asking you to do stuff, you're interested in, in not just helping them out, but you're interested in the work itself. And so if I've learned... Anything over the 14 years I've been here at York, it's that uh, you need to focus on projects that you're interested in because not only are they um, more motivating, but they they have that feed-forward mechanism into future motivation. And so when you do that, you develop research teams of people that just keep going. Um, if, if you're involved in projects that you're not giving 100% to, the people around you know that, and, and that's right. not a good way to facilitate research relationships. And so I've been lucky with the colleagues I have in Germany and Australia and England and, you know, and here uh, in Canada that these are people that I just, I want to work with. I wake up every day thinking what great ideas can we explore today? And so when you do that, the productivity uh, takes care of itself. Hmm. So finding, surrounding yourself with the people you want to work with and also doing what you love. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the people I don't always mean scientists either, the right. grad students are a big part of it. And so when I choose um, grad students that, that are interested in working in the lab, I think mm-hmm. about, you know, are they going to be someone who I want to go down and talk to uh, on a regular basis? Or are they going to be somebody who's going to get along with people in the lab? Because we try right. to facilitate that kind of environment. And if the answer is no, then normally they don't get selected. And I think mm-hmm. we've been pretty lucky in terms of who we've chosen that we've never really had a bad egg in the, in the lab that's had a negative, a long-term negative effect on, mm-hmm. on relationships. Give me a couple of years and we'll see. Well, that's why, yeah, mm-hmm. I was hedging my bets there. I'm on a short leash. I'm trying to give you positive uh, feedback. Mm-hmm. 
yeah that that's working so far yeah. um so anyone who knows you knows you're very big on reading so another question about maximizing productivity but in terms of reading how do you find time to read as much books uh, as many books as you can or how to find time to, to get as much reading as possible throughout the day for for academics and not academics how do you get through a lot of books well i think part of it is um having a wide um, range of interests uh, and so you know on the on the bookshelf at home right now there's a book on um the neurophysiology of behavior and there's one on um on her concepts of heredity and where that came mm -hmm. from and those are popular science books i like to read um, good popular science that's written well. Um, but I have, there's a stack of novels covering everything from, you know, um, police thrillers to fantasy to, mm -hmm. you know, there's a book on, uh, on poetry there. And so it's, I think, you know, I, in addition to a lot of reading, I, I watch quite a bit of TV as well. And so, mm -hmm. you know, part of it is just, always wanting to have my attention grabbed by something right. interesting. Uh, and so whether that's a well-written popular science book or a thriller or a TV show, um, I like that idea of being consumed by that sensual experience. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's part of the research stuff too, is the, the excitement of finding a new research result that wasn't what you expected. Right. Um, that I like that kind of yeah, sensual, uh, intense experience. Uh, how do you feel about kind of, um, I forgot what the term is called, but it's pretty much when you box out different, uh, you know, periods of time throughout the day to do one thing at a time. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what, what that term is called, but how do you feel about that? Are you the type of person that does that or are you multitasking or? Yeah, I'm, I'm normally I'm multitasking and probably yeah. that's my obsessive, um, um, compulsive, compulsory behavior, um, traits i think mm -hmm. like i'm one of those people that the email's on all the time and when a new message comes in i need to respond to it right away okay. which is probably something that's affected my productivity more than it's helped it um because i'll drop you know i might be in a good writing mode and then i'll right. see a, an email from hey lou sent me an email what's he mm -hmm. need now and then i'll it's I'll, like I'll, some I'll, stupid link to my podcast and yeah, like, it was, yeah yeah i yeah. just those go right in the uh, mm -hmm. spam folder <laughs> yeah. I, I set that up um, but no, just th because the obsessive compulsive part of me wants to get that out of my inbox so that okay. there's as few messages in there as possible. And so, um, I don't compartmentalize my day, but that's I'll it. Compartmentalizing. Up, yeah. I'll wake up thinking, okay, this morning I'm going to write, uh, mm -hmm. and then in the afternoon it's going to be reading or reviewing or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I don't set up you know, 15 minute blocks or hour blocks or anything like that. And I say that after just having a whole day of meetings that were in right, half hour blocks. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so for any graduate students listening, what advice do you have for graduate students who want to become academics in the future? Uh, I would say looking back at your own experience, for yeah. example, and what you know now, if you could go back and give a graduate student yourself as a graduate student, some advice, what would you be patient with yourself. Um, I, I would say that's the number one thing. And I give that advice to undergrad students in my large lecture as well. I think there's this race to get to the, to get to the end and, uh, they don't enjoy the journey while you're there. And so, um, that would be my advice is be patient, be more kind to yourself, mm -hmm. um, and not, you know, not let other people's expectations weigh you down and affect the quality of your, uh, your journey. 
Um, I would also say do things that you're interested in, even if that means, you know, you turn left and eventually come back and turn right. Um, the time isn't wasted when you get to your full-time job, you're going to be there for a very long time. And so make sure you end up in the right place. Uh, and sometimes that's taking a risk and taking a gamble and just trying something, even if you, even if it doesn't work out, the trying is the thing. So it's, <clears throat> it's more of a marathon than a sprint is really your advice to, to graduate students, like pace yourself, don't, don't yeah. exhaust all your, well, your again, energy. it's that, it's that dichotomy, right? It's right. Just, for some people, it is a sprint. They know right away. So my sister-in-law, for example, uh, when she started university, she knew right away that she was going to be a vet. She probably knew in her childhood because okay. of the way she grew up. And so she did everything she could to get to becoming a vet right. the fastest way possible. Perfect trajectory mm -hmm. for her, for me, for somebody who didn't really know, uh, didn't have the opportunities to know, then it was more of a winding, twisting turn. I think both of those are totally fine. It's just, again, being patient and being kinder to yourself to let yourself make mistakes and let yourself go down rabbit holes and uh, and find the fun in that. Anyone who is familiar with research in, in uh, academia knows that academics and researchers really um, suffer from a lot of stress at one point or another in their career. And some of some of in some of those cases, the the results can be you know, almost catastrophic yeah. uh, on their careers and their health and their families. What advice do you have to academics on how to manage stress in their job, and you know how to manage um, being a good researcher, but also having time spent with family and, and friends and all that, and hobbies and activities. It's a difficult um, balance to to get because we live in a world where um, the the number of publications the university wants you to produce is always more, uh, and so I think that it's up to every individual person to find that balance and to have that honest discussion with themselves about what do they want out of this academic life and. You know, if it's to be a world-leading researcher, then the requirements uh, of your job demands are more than than somebody who just wants to float by and do the you know the the basic minimum. Both of those, again, both of those approaches are totally fine, but you need to have an honest discussion with yourself. Uh, right. And so, uh, I think that, again, it comes back to this being more patient and being more kind with the, the way you think about yourself and the expectations that you place on yourself mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, the helpful advice I would say is surround yourselves with, uh, with like-minded people who share the same value system that you have, because then your workload goes further. Um, a lot of these, um, projects get done easier. They get done more in, in a more fun way, um, all of that stuff. And so for me, I never had that, that job stress because it, it was always fun. And I just, again, random coincidence of mm -hmm. events that led me to a place where <clears throat> I was doing things that were ticking a lot of boxes for people, but I was having fun at the same time. So one of the things, like I haven't found myself in this position just yet, but uh, a lot of things that I hear from academics and when they give advice to grad students is know when to say no to projects. Yeah. How important do you think that is to, to, just to not take too much on your plate? Well, I think there's a balance that needs to happen there, right? Like say no to projects when you have other projects that can take their place, right? Like don't say no to every project and then spend your night sitting at home watching, um, you know, Letterkenny on YouTube or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like make sure that you're you're filling the amount of time that you want to fill with, with projects and 
the more you can do that with projects that you're interested in and 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 passionate about the better mm-hmm. but you need to be working um, right uh, to, especially grad students who are trying to develop their cvs if you have a cv that's one or two passion projects on there and another person has one or two passion projects plus four or five others that they were peripherally involved in that right. person's going to have an advantage and so you have to think about those mm-hmm. things in a strategic way now is the job market in academia getting harder and harder in terms of getting tenure track jobs yeah without question it's getting more and more difficult we're seeing the number of applications for any position increasing every time we we put a position out there so what can we attribute that to Fewer positions, I think, greater reliance in the university system on contract mm-hmm. um, uh, contract faculty with high, higher teaching loads. Um, yeah, I think the university system in Canada at least is changing, uh, is f- fundamentally changing, which is uh, we're starting to see in, in some of the, um, you know, social discussions and, and uh, unrest, uh, especially here at York. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's end this podcast on a, on a weird question. So in, in sport research, a lot of times you see papers referring to chess as a sport. Hmm. Do you think chess is a sport? I do because it's in the IOC guidelines as a sport. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really the only reason I see it as a sport. Other than um, if you look at the things that we want from a sport, uh, competition, if, uh, physical intensity, um, uh, you know, uh, ranking systems, international uh, rules that govern behavior and play, mm-hmm. uh, all of those things are present in chess. Uh, and if you talk to chess grandmasters, they'll tell you how physically intense a game of chess is, even though it looks like a very cognitive uh, activity. How can, yeah, because it is cognitively exhaustive, yeah. but how is it physically is it just because the mental stress causes physical stress? That's right. It's the brain-body link. Is right. that when you're under cognitive stress, it can manifest itself in physical stress. And so the intensity, intensity mm-hmm. is intensity, right? Your brain is uh, responding to a um, physical or responding to a cognitive task with a physical response. So in that sense, can we consider poker a sport, or is it actually considered by any by anyone by any governing body to be a sport? I don't know. I don't think so. But um, you, you you could make a case that the um, the rules of poker and the rules of chess are so mm-hmm. similar that they they either neither of them belong there or both of them belong there. Hmm. Yeah. So it's not too late for me to be an athlete then. If for I take poker a, or if for I chess for well maybe poker yeah. right would it, would it be easier to get into poker than chess at my age? I mean, with no experience in either. Yeah, you're probably past the chess uh, mm-hmm. window of development. And I'm kind of entering this phase of degenerate gambling, so yeah. I think that would be that'd be quite good for me. Plus, you look good in sunglasses too. Definitely so, look good uh, in sunglasses. Yeah, yeah some yeah. Ray Bans. Yeah, I love it. I'll be an athlete. There you go. There Your you dream go. Dream has come true. It's finally here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for doing this, Joe. I really appreciate it, and um, I hope I can have you back on soon. Uh, we yeah. can discuss even more projects. And where can people find you on, on Twitter? Uh, Twitter, I'm Baker J. York U. Mm-hmm. And uh, my website is yorku.ca slash Baker J. Awesome. And uh, yeah, all the research is there. And, all, and some books too. You've pu- recently published uh, a couple books. Yeah, a couple handbooks. Uh, and... One of sport expertise and one on talent, mm-hmm. um, talent ID, uh, which are I was the editor, but the contributors have made some amazing chapters in there. So we're nice. excited about both of those.